Hey, just out of curiosity, how many of you have like more family gatherings in the next couple of days? I, I know some of you've done some. We did our one last night. So some of you, go ahead, put your hands back up. I wasn't looking yet. All right, there you go. So how many of you, and you don't have to necessarily raise your hand on this, but how many of you have extended family members that you're kind of like, oh, they're going to be there, right? Yeah. I see, so you didn't have to raise your hands. Uh, hey, we all have those family members, right, that, that maybe we're not exactly proud of. Maybe that we, you know, maybe they're on your spouse's side. I mean, that's how I would say it's all the people in ours, is, they're on Christie's side of the family. But, I mean, we all know who we're talking about, right? But you, you love them. You're just glad they live a couple of states away. You're glad that there's Christmas and Thanksgiving and you have to rotate those. And, and we all have those people in our families. And as we've discovered in this series, and this is kind of a shocker, that Jesus had some characters in his family as well. Not his immediate family in his lifetime, but, but in his extended family and, as, and going back into the lineage of his family. And so what we've done for this series is we've been studying uh, the, the genealogy, strangely enough, that we find in the book of Matthew. And, and we're talking about some of those characters, those people that maybe you wouldn't necessarily want known associated with you. Matthew begins the Christmas story with the genealogy of Jesus and he gets to the when he, when he gets to the strange and the R-rated and the unusual characters instead of just kind of glossing over them he actually makes a point to draw our attention to them. And it is it's it's really an odd thing. Why would you point out all the people in your family that you don't want anybody to know about, right? Why would you do that? But he makes a point to draw our attention to them. And we've asked the question, why would you do that, Matthew? And every week the answer's been the same, right? It's because they're a part of the story. Those people in the, in the genealogy of Jesus, they're a part of the story. But more importantly, they're the point of the story. They're the point of the story. Because Matthew's about to tell the story of Jesus, and he's about to introduce and to reintroduce into this first century predominantly Jewish culture the idea that God has invited us to approach him, not based on our ability, and not based on the things that we've done and, and all of our good deeds and all of the bad things that we've avoided, but instead based on what He has done for us. And so to, to get the Jewish people ready for that message, which is, a dip, which is difficult, would have been difficult for them to accept, and honestly difficult for a lot of us to accept. He, he goes all the way back and He says, look, you need to understand that Jesus is Jewish. And so He goes, all the way back to Abraham, he, he, to, to great detail to point out that Jesus is related to Abraham. That makes him Jewish, so that's a, that's a check in the right box for him. But that he's also the Messiah, and to prove that he's the Messiah, he has to be related to David. And so, so he's, he, he proves that. He's, he's set up to be the Messiah. He's the Jewish Messiah. He's the long-awaited person that they have waited for. And along the way in this genealogy, he just stops and he points out people who all needed, honestly, the same thing that we need, right? Which is the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. But here's kind of the clincher. And here's what we're going to talk about today. In, in this genealogy that Matthew writes, as he points out the faults of, of all of these different people, today we're going to talk about the person that, that Jesus is most closely associated with. That throughout his lifetime would be the, the name most closely associated to his name. And, and we're going to see where Matthew points out his faults. In fact, this one particular character, and this is the name again, whose, whose name is most synonymous with the name of Jesus, more than anybody else who lived a thousand years prior to, to Jesus, 
This is the person so closely associated with, his, with Jesus that when I say his name, everybody in this room will already know who I'm talking about. You'll know his story. When Matthew gets to this particular character in the genealogy, instead of just going through all of the good things and pointing out all the wonderful things, which there were a lot to point out, Matthew slams on the brakes and he forces everybody to stop and look at this one thing, this one season of this character's life, which is the season that I think he wished he could go back and take away. Matthew, in sort of his over-the-top way, he says, and remember, even though this is the man most closely associated with Jesus, that when it came to his personal life, his morality, his character, his ethics, there was at least one season of his life where this man was an incredible, incredible failure, a dismal failure in every sense of the word. In fact, this guy, out of insecurity and, and fear, he one time told a lie, and as a result of that lie, about 85 priests were murdered. This guy betrayed one of his most loyal friends to the point of having him put to death in order to cover up a secret. This is the guy that ran around on his wife. This is the guy that destroyed his family so that even his kids went to war with him. There are so many embarrassing and just honestly bad moments and seasons in this man's life, and yet this is the man whose name is most closely associated with the name of Jesus. Here's how Matthew begins his genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. You don't need to turn there because we're going to look at this guy's story in the Old Testament in just a minute. But here it is. Matthew 1, 1. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Now, we know he's not actually the son of David. We're going to get to that in, in a minute. But, but right off the top, right off the top, here's the man whose name is most closely associated with the name of Jesus, David. But listen to how Matthew positions David in this genealogy, let me read the whole thing. It said, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So there's Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Remember, we talked about them a couple weeks ago. Judah the father of, of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We talked about her when we talked about Judah. Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. We talked about her. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. We should have talked about her. There's a bright spot. But then he goes on. He says, Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. What he should have said was David... Uh, David was the father of Solomon, and Solomon was the father of, of whoever and whoever and whoever, and he should have just kept on going, right? But, but no, he doesn't. He stops and he says, David is the father of Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife. Why? Why, Matthew, would you say that? Why, why not say David the builder, David the psalmist, David the warrior, David the, the little shepherd boy? There are so many wonderful things you could have said about David, and yet this is the one thing you picked, whose mother was Solomon's or was Uriah's wife. Why would you do that? Why would you draw, Matthew, why would you draw our attention to the biggest failure of David's life? Because that's the point of the story. That's the point of the story that he's about to tell in his gospel of Matthew. And he, and he reminds his very Jewish audience, and he reminds us, his very Gentile audience, that this man, the preeminent, the preeminent king of the kingdom of Israel, who... David, that he was also a sinner in every sense of the word, a, a failure as a leader, as a friend, as a father, as a husband. He was a failure. Here's David's story if you want to follow along. I'm going to read from 2 
Samuel chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible, flip over to that. And while you're, while you're finding that, let me just kind of give you the, the setup for this story. The story of David, it takes place a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. And here's what happens. There's a prophet named Samuel, and God nudges Samuel and says, Hey, I want you to go anoint a new king in, in the land of Israel. In fact, it's going to be a child king. And he sends him to a little town, and the town is named Bethlehem. The first mention of Bethlehem in the Bible is not at the birth of Jesus. It's a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, and it happened to be where a man named Jesse and his eight sons lived. And so Samuel goes down to Bethlehem in, in search of the home of Jesse, and he finds Jesse and he says, Hey, Jesse, I'd like for you to bring all of your boys in, bring them all into the living room, because I've got a very special message for you and your sons. And so Jesse, instead of calling all eight of his sons into the, to the house, he calls seven of his sons because the youngest son is out taking care of the sheep. He's out with the hired hands. He's out with all, all of the other farmers. And so Samuel looks at the, at the oldest son uh, of Jesse's, and he thinks to himself, and the Bible tells us this in 1 Samuel chapter 16, he thinks to himself, this has got to be the king. He's the firstborn. He, he's tall. He, he, he looks kingly. This has got to be the guy, right? And God kind of nudges him on the inside of his heart and says, nope. Not him. And so Jesse or Samuel goes to the second son. Okay, the second son, he's got a lot of spunk. He's the second born. Maybe, maybe this is the guy. And God again nudges Samuel and says, nope, not him. We go to the third son. And, and you know, the, he's learned from the mistakes of the first two, right? If you're the third child, that's what you should do. You should learn from the mistakes of the first two children. Whatever they got in trouble for, don't get in trouble for the same thing, all right? So he's learned from their mistakes. And, and, and he, maybe he's going to be the king and. Again, God nudges Samuel and says, nope, not him. And so we go through all seven sons that are in the room, and, and God says, nope, none of these are the king. And so Samuel's kind of thinking, am I at the wrong house? Like, is there, is there another Jesse that lives in Bethlehem? Because maybe I'm just at the wrong house. And so then Samuel says, well, you know what, Jesse, this is kind of a strange question. It's kind of an odd question. But do you have any more sons? It's kind of an odd question to ask somebody, right? And he says, well, yeah, there's David, but, but you don't want David. He's, he's, he's a shepherd boy. He's out with the sheep. He's taking care of, uh, of all of our animals. So he's not the guy. I'm, I'm telling you, he's not the guy. And Samuel says, no, 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 no. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to go get him. And we're going to sit here, and we're just going to wait. And we don't care how long it takes. Go find him. And we're all going to sit here, and we're going to wait till David comes in, and, and we're going to see if he's the guy. And so they send for David, and they all just, they wait, and we don't know how long it took, but, but David comes in, and, you know, he's, he's been out in the field, and he's, he's hot, and he's sweaty, he's, you know, if he's like me, he's got allergies, his, his nose is running, and his eyes are watering, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and so he comes in, and he doesn't look, there's nothing kingly about him. There's nothing that looks like he's going to be the guy, and God nudges Samuel, and Samuel says, hey, he's the guy. You're going to be the next king of Israel and of course David he's, he's a teenager at this point he doesn't know what any of that means so he just you know he blows his nose and runs back out to take care of the rest of the sheep right and so he just goes about being a kid and so you can you can read the rest of the story for yourself but but through a very dramatic uh, series of events several years later many years later in fact this little shepherd boy becomes the second king of Israel and years go by and one day David is in his palace and he's in his home and he looks at how well he's been taken care of and how, how well he's done for himself and how God has blessed him. And he thinks, you know, look at how nice of a place that I live in. And then he looks out the window and he sees a very elaborate tent called the tabernacle. 
Now, now this tabernacle, this tent, was essentially where God dwelled. God dwelled in a box called the Ark of the Covenant, and inside the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments. Now, the Israelites, they, they knew that God was bigger than, than that box, but they carried this box everywhere they went because this box signified God's presence. It, it was the focal point of their worship, but it, it mainly stayed in a tent. And so David decided God doesn't need to be camping out anymore. In fact, if I can live in a, in a palace like this, then, then he needs to live in, in, a, in, a, in a place just as nice. And so David decides that he's going to build a temple for God. And he goes to work to begin raising all the money and, and putting things together. And he needs to build this, t- that, he, that he's going to need to build the temple. And at that point in his life, God sends another prophet into his life with some good news and some not so good news. And this is where I want to pick the story up. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. And the prophet's name this time is the prophet Nathan. And Nathan comes to David, and here's the message that he gives him. He says, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from tending the flocks and appointed you ruler over my people. Now listen to this promise that, David, that, that God makes to David. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. Now this is incredible. This is 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before Jesus, right? And Nathan tells David, hey, I'm going to make your name great. God is going to make your name great like the greatest among the men of earth who have ever lived. All right, crowd participation time. Let me, a little survey question. How many of you, before you came into church this morning, before you heard me say anything about David, how many of you already knew about King David? Would you raise your hand? All right, now, would you look around? Uh, keep your hands up. If, if you knew about King David, keep your hand up. Now, look around. Isn't that incredible? That, that essentially came true, didn't it? That 3,000 years later, people all over the world in many, many languages in different nations know who King David was. That's amazing. This was predicted 3,000 years ago. And God said to David, David, your name is going to be great. Your name is going to be among the greatest men in all of the world who have ever lived. And that's exactly what happened. An interesting coincidence, isn't it? Hmm. I don't think so. Go on to verse 11. It says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Meaning a, a generational name. For, that for generations to come, people will know your name. Verse 12 says, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. So, so God's saying, hey, I'm going to give you a son who's going to be king, and, and that actually happened. His name was Solomon. He is the one who will build a house for my name. All right, So this is where we kind of get to some not-so-good news for David. David, you're not going to build the temple. Solomon's going to do it. In other words, David, David, you, you have participated in a lot of things, in a lot of bloodshed, a lot of wars, so you don't get to build the temple. But your son Solomon, he's going to build this temple. He's the one that will build a house for, for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And this is a very important part of what comes next, because it's, it will help explain some of the dilemma of God's judgment and God's love. Verse 14, it says, When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by human beings, with floggings inflicted by human hands. In other words, he says, David, when you, when you or your people, when they, they follow uh, me and they disobey me and they rebel against me, I'm going to punish them because I'm a good father and good fathers discipline their children. I'm not going to let that go unnoticed. But then verse 15, it says, but mine, what's the next word? But my what? Love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house 
and your kingdom, listen to this promise, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me and your throne will be established forever. An unconditional promise made to King David. David, you don't get to build the temple, but your throne, your name, your family, your lineage, I'm going to establish that forever and that's a promise. And then, Four chapters later, in the same book of the Bible, David tests the patience of God in, in one of the most extreme ways imaginable. Four chapters later, we're introduced to the story in the life of David that all of us probably know bits and pieces of, and it's the story where he meets Bathsheba. And if you know the story, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to read it to you, I'm going to condense it down to about 20 seconds or so, and you can read it for yourself. But he's on the wall of his palace one night when he's supposed to be at war. That's how it starts, when all the kings, in the springtime, when all the kings were at war. But David wasn't at war. He was at home. He was at the palace. He was where he wasn't supposed to be. He's, he's on the wall of his palace, and he looks down, and he sees this woman. And so he calls a servant, and he says, hey, who, who is that woman? And the servant says, that's your general Uriah's wife. And he says, well, where's Uriah? Well, Uriah's out fighting. He's where he's supposed to be. And David says, well, hey, I'd like to talk to her. So, so go send somebody to bring her over. And, well, they do more than talk. And a few weeks later, she lets David know through a servant that she's pregnant with his child. And now David's got a mess on his hands. And so David calls for Uriah to come home from the battlefield. And he makes up some reason for why he needs to be there. And he says, hey, you just come on home for a couple days. And so they have this meeting. And after they finish up with the meeting, he says, hey, Uriah, I'll tell you what. Since you're already home, since you're already in the city, why don't you just go home and spend the night with your wife? And tomorrow you can go back to the battlefield. And so he sends Uriah out the door. And the next morning, he's informed that Uriah didn't go home, that Uriah spent the night outside of the king's door. And he says, so he calls Uriah and says, hey, buddy, why didn't you go home? I, I told you you should go home and spend the night with your wife. Why didn't you? And Uriah says, hey, how can I go home and enjoy the comforts of, of my home when my men are out on the battlefield? And David says, okay, well, I need you to stay one more night. And so he comes back to the palace a little bit later, and David gets him good and drunk, and he says to Uriah, hey, why don't you go home now and spend the night at home with your wife, and the next day you can go back to, to the battlefield, to, to your men. And David gets up the next morning, and again the next morning he discovers that Uriah didn't go home, that in fact he spent the night outside of his gate. And again he says to Uriah, hey, hey buddy, why didn't you go home? And Uriah says, hey, how can, I, how can I go home and enjoy the comforts of home when my men are sweating and bleeding and dying? On the, on the battlefield. At which point in the story you would think God would go, okay, David, Uriah. David, Uriah. I'll just make Uriah the king because he's the only one who's acted in any kind of righteous way at this point, right? And so David, uh, David, he has to do something. So he comes up with another idea. This is the stuff that you, that, that, I mean, this is like the stuff of Hollywood. They should make a movie about this. David, in the privacy of his office, writes a message to Joab. Joab is the commander in the battlefield. He's Uriah's superior in the battlefield. And he writes a message that says this, basically, Joab, tomorrow in battle, I want you to put Uriah and his men in, in, in the front and center in the heat of the battle. And when it's getting going really good, I want you to pull back all of your men, and I want you to expose him and, and, and leave him there by himself. And Joab understood the, the implications of this when he gets this letter. He understands that this is a death sentence for Uriah. And so David seals the note and he hands it to Uriah, who then takes it to Joab. And so in a very ironic and cruel twist of fate, Uriah hands over his death sentence to Joab. I mean, how low 
do you get? I mean, that's pretty low, isn't it? Joab receives the message, he reads it, he understands exactly what the implication is, and the next day in battle, Uriah and his men are in the forefront of the battle, and, and everything is, 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 is intense, and everybody else all of a sudden withdraws, and, and eventually Uriah and his men, they're all alone, and the Bible says that Uriah was such a valiant warrior that they chased the men all the way back to the gates of the city that they were trying to conquer, and when they get to the gates of the city that they're trying to conquer, an archer from the wall shoots and kills Uriah. The message gets back to Bathsheba and to David that Uriah is dead. And so Bathsheba mourns the loss of her husband, and David thinks, my sin has been covered up. And so he sends for Bathsheba, and he marries her. And his perspective, everything is fine. His, his ill deed, his bad deed, it's all been covered up. Nobody ever has to know about what has happened. But God knew. But God knew. And here's what the Bible tells us in the same book. In 2 Samuel, it says this, uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 27. It says, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And now God has to make a decision, doesn't he, if God makes decisions. God has to decide, do I retract my promise that I made, or is a promise a promise? I mean, I said it was unconditional, but in light of these new circumstances, in light of David's recent behavior, in light of his unrighteousness, do, do I go back on that promise? Is this a promise that I can go back on? And Nathan, the prophet, once again comes to David and he confronts David and he says, David, you have done evil. You have sinned. And, and the Bible says that David went to the tabernacle and he fell down before the altar of God and he, and he confessed his sins. In fact, you can read it in Psalm 51. It's the psalm that he writes that's about his repentance. And it's not one of these like, hey, hey, God, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. I'll, I, I promise I'll, I'll try not to do that again. No, this is a, a very heartfelt where he just he, he begs for God's forgiveness. And he, he says, God, I have sinned against you, and, and, and I don't deserve your forgiveness, but would you please forgive me? And he begs, and he begs, and he begs, and God decides that he's going to forgive David of his sin. But God decides to humble him and to punish him. And God's chastisement and God's discipline of David is absolutely brutal. But his promise remains unconditional. Charlie Renfro said it this way. He said, God dragged David through hell sideways. Listen to what happens to David after this. His entire family falls apart. His sons went to war with each other. His favorite son murdered his oldest son. Then his, his favorite general, Joab, murdered his favorite son. His family was split. The kingdom was divided for a time. He had to move out of the palace while his son just humiliated him in a way that you can only imagine. And, and the only way you can imagine is just to read the story for yourself. But through all the chaos and through all the, the, the bloodshed and all of the things, that, these terrible things, these personal disasters for David, God never withdrew his promise from David. Because even though God's punishment was brutal, and it was, his decision was firm, his promise was eternal, to the point that 990 years later, that's so amazing, that 990 years later, with all of that as a backdrop, with all of that chaos, with all of that embarrassment, and by the way, the child that Bathsheba was pregnant with, he dies in the process. I mean, I mean, complete disaster, embarrassing be, beyond anything imaginable. This whole thing has become public now. And in spite of all of that, 990 years later, a man in the line of David named Joseph with his pregnant wife Mary made their way to the city of Bethlehem, which by this time in the first century was known as the city of David. And there she gave birth to the great, 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 great grandson of King David, because God keeps his promises. Now, you see, if you're Matthew, 
and you're an ex-tax collector. And you know what it means to be forgiven of sin because you're, you're the ex-tax collector who knew that if I'm ever going to come to God based on the platform of my own personal righteousness, I'm never going to be able to come to God. And you're Matthew and you're about to tell the greatest story that's ever going to be told about a Savior coming into the world and dying and paying for all of mankind's sins. We're talking all mankind so that men and women, boys and girls, children can come to God on the basis not on what they have done or the or the good that they've done or the bad that they've avoided but on what God has done for them if you're about to tell that story especially to a group of people that held David in the highest regard how could you possibly skip that part of the story because this story the story of David and Bathsheba it underscores the entire New Testament that when God makes a promise, that He keeps His promise. That when God makes a promise, even the most heinous sin in the world cannot force God to go back on His word. And Matthew was about to tell a story of God making a new promise. A promise that was different than the promise that He made to David. A promise not made to, to an individual, but as we're going to see, a promise made to everybody in the whole world. And it was a promise that was sealed in blood, but not by both parties. Because it was an unconditional promise. It was sealed with the blood of one party. When Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, it was the establishment of a brand new covenant, a brand new contract between God and all of mankind, but only one party bled because it was an unconditional covenant. And as Matthew begins the story of Jesus and he knows about everything that he's going to tell, all that's ahead, how could he not stop and emphasize the sin of the man who was the most revered Jewish man in all of history, the man whose name was most closely associated with the name of Jesus more than anybody else. Because David, among, uh, among and above all other Old Testament characters, was a man who understood this, that he, he needed the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. And God kept his promise to David. And that's why you know his name today. Because God kept his promise. And in the same way, God would keep his promise to, to all mankind when he would send his son to die. So imagine, Matthew's going through this genealogy and he's going, you know what, this is perfect. It's perfect. It's the perfect illustration of the story that I'm about to tell. But the angel said it better than anyone. In, in the book of Luke, where we find the other record of the Christmas story, here's how Luke records it. Luke, uh, Luke, Luke uh, excuse me, 2.10, here's what the angel says. And listen to what the angel said, and you've heard this a thousand times, I'm sure. But now listen to it through a brand new filter. Luke 2.10, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And you are part of all the people, okay? You are an all in all the people. Not Jewish people, not first century people, all the people. And, and you ask, Angel, how can this be good news for all people? Because God is making a promise to all the people, the good people, the bad people, the in-between people, the people that think they're better than everybody else, and the people that know they're not, all the people. And the angel said, I have good news for all people. God is making a promise to you today. In the city of David. Hear that. Read that. Today. In the town of David. Here's what I hope for you for the rest of your life. That every time you read the Christmas story. Every time you hear the Christmas story. When you see it acted out with kids in a, in a, in a church play. When you uh, read it on a screen at church. When you read it uh, before you open presents. Uh, whenever you hear it. Where, wherever you read it. I don't care. When you hear this phrase. The town of David. Town of David, town of David. I hope that for the rest of your life, it will be a reminder of the promises that God 
made to David and to the promise that God has made to you. Because today in the town of David, David, the, the promise breaker, David, the, the unfaithful, David who leveraged his power for personal gain, David the murderer, David who wrecked his family, David who had a man put to death in the town of David. And look at these next two words. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. And he is the Messiah. And then it gets better. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace on earth to those whom his favor rests. Listen, God promised me and you peace. That's the promise. And the only way for us to have peace with God, the only way for you to have peace with God, and the only way for me to have peace with God is for us to have that obstacle to our peace removed. And do you know what that obstacle is? It's sin. The reason that you don't have peace with God, for some of you, is because you continue to negotiate your sin. You continue to negotiate your sin. Hey, God, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as everybody else. I know I'm not that great, but I'm not, you know, I'm not as bad as they are. God, I promise I'll do better this time. God, I know I'm not in church right now, but I, I promise I'll go back later. I'm, I, I can't really pray right now, but I'll pray tomorrow. God, if you'll just do this, I'll do that. Your whole interaction with God is negotiate, 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 and promise to do better. And God, I, I know I can do better. But you'll never have peace with God. Listen to me on this. You'll never have peace with God as long as you continue to negotiate your sin. The only way for you to have peace with God is to have your sin removed. And here's the message of Christmas. Jesus came to remove your sin so that you can have peace. And you don't have to start by, please don't start by telling me how bad you are. Adam, you'll never believe all the things I've done. Yeah, I would. I would. I've probably done them too. And then guess what? You just start telling me how bad you are. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm just going to start telling you the story of David again in slow motion with all the details. I'm going to tell you all the story of Rahab and Tamar again in slow motion so that you have to understand how bad they were. But listen, you can't have peace with God. You can't have the promise of Christmas until that obstacle of peace has been removed. And that's sin. And the promise of Christmas is that God sent his son into the world to remove sin once and for all. So that you could come to God, not on the basis of what you've done or what you promised that you won't do later. But on the basis of what has been done for you. And Matthew, the tax collector, who experienced that firsthand, who, who went through all of the Old Testament history, realized that this is what God has been doing all along. But now that through Christ, this final obstacle of sin, the final penalty, the eternal penalty of sin, it's been done away with because through the blood of Christ, a new promise has been made a new contract, a new covenant has been initiated, but not through the blood of two parties, through the blood of one party, because it was an unconditional promise. Just like David's promise was unconditional, the promise to you and the promise to me that God makes is unconditional as well. You can have peace with God in spite of you. And I can have peace with God in spite of me. And you might say, well, Adam, that sounds great, but that sounds really one-sided. It feels like so one-sided in my favor, good, you get it. Yeah, it does. It is. You understand. But, but Adam, if it's that simple, what, then what if I go off and, and I sin? Well, let me just tell you, sin always has consequences. In fact, most sins carry their own, own consequences. But this isn't about that. This is about whether or not you can have peace with God. And the answer to that question is yes. 
but not as long as you continue to negotiate your sin. Not as long as you continue to, regardless of what you think or believe or what kind of church you grew up in or, or, or whatever your background is, as long as you try to negotiate your sin, you'll never be able to experience the full goodness of God. Because the promise of Christmas, peace, it only comes when we fully embrace the promise, the promise of the gift, forgiveness. Not through our efforts, not through our promises, but through Jesus, through Christ. And so I want to ask you, and we've been talking about this for four weeks now. I want to ask you, have you put this away forever, this idea that, that I have to come to God based on what I've done, you know, that based on my own righteousness. And so you just keep coming to God with, you know, the, this past weekend with, in your mind, the past 10 minutes in your mind, you know, last month, your, your childhood, your, your teenage years where you rebelled and, you know, you did what God knows what with God knows who. You keep coming to God with that in mind. Have you put that away forever? Because you can't have peace with God until you do. I'll tell you what else. As long as you're negotiating your sin, as long as you continue to negotiate your, your sin with God, you'll, you'll continue to be dragged right back into that same sin over and over and over. It just doesn't work. The whole system is bankrupt when it comes to that. But the promise of Christ is peace for all, my, for all, all man, as, especially those who are willing to embrace the price of peace, which is our Savior's life. So have you made that exchange? Have you made the exchange for the way I used to think about God and how I can approach God for how I can approach God now and have peace with God? Because the obstacle to peace has been removed. God, you've made me an unconditional promise of eternal life. You made me an unconditional promise uh, of your presence. And just as you kept your promise to David, God, I believe that you will keep your promise to me. Have you made that exchange? If you haven't, we want to give you that opportunity again today to do so. And if you're listening to this message, and you're, or maybe you're watching online, and, and you think, you know what, that's what I want. Because, Adam, it's true. Every time I come to God, all I can think about is my failure. All I can think about are all the things that I've never gotten right. When I come to God, all I think about is my past. When I come to God, I think about my inconsistency. And, Adam, all my prayers start with, what a bad person I am. I want you to put that away once and for all. Because the promise of Christmas is that you can, because God has already done the hard work. He's already paid for your sin it's not an issue with him anymore it's just an issue with you so remember this today you're going to read this probably 10 more times over the next three days today in the town of david a what a savior has been born let me pray for us